The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Uh, Do you have someone in your life who is a great encourager to you? They have a way of saying just the right thing at just the right time. And every time you you get together with this person, you come away feeling a a little bit better about life. There's just something about spending time with them. Uh, It's always positive and uplifting to you. Or or do you have that parent who did a great job with you when you were growing up? They're always cheering you on. The fact is, we all need encouragement especially in these times when there's so much out there that can pull us down and get, in, get us feeling discouraged or anxious about things. Uh, there is nothing like the news to remind us of how fallen our world is. Well, the good news today is as we look at God's letter to the church in Philadelphia, uh, there is nothing he has to confront them on or correct them in in their lives, uh, but it is a letter full of all kinds of encouragement. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever thought about how God goes about encouraging his children? How does God do that? What if his method of encouragement is not what you're used to receiving? If so, there becomes a danger of missing out on being encouraged by God, right? Because it's like, well, that's not how I like to be encouraged. If you like the the rah-rah, let's go, you got this, you are amazing, no one's going to stop you, baby, type of encouragement, you're going to be disappointed because that's not what I see in Scripture. That's not God's way. He's not like the parent who goes crazy when their six-year-old hits the ball in t-ball. I mean, the ball is on a tee. It doesn't move. The kid comes up there, lines it all up, and and hits the ball. It's not that hard. Oh, I'm not saying you don't cheer your child on when they hit the ball. We did when our child was doing that. Or when they hit the tee and the ball still goes forward. But we don't need to go crazy. It's t-ball. Come on. God knows what we need. It's not a bunch of crazy yelling and going wild, but truths and promises that we can hold on to that will stand the test of time and will see us through whatever this fallen world and the evil one throws at us. This is what he gives us in the letter to the church in Philadelphia. A church that was also called the Little Athens because of its many temples. And God does identify in the letter a synagogue of Satan that was there. There were certainly plenty of challenges for the believers back then and and they were surrounded by evil. They could certainly use some encouraging words from their heavenly father. Are you ready to be encouraged by God today? Let's pray. Father, may your truths 
May your promises that we're going to see in this brief letter to the church in Philadelphia ring true in our hearts. May we embrace them. May we take them deep into our soul. And may they encourage us, reminding us of what is true, of what is to come, of who you are. Thank you, God, that you desire to encourage us. Help us not to miss it in the way that you encourage. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read Revelation 3. Um, I don't know if I told you to turn there or not, but Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13 is what I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And to the church and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shut, shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he, shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This letter begins by reminding us of what is true of the one who is writing this letter, Jesus. He identifies true, two amazing truths about him. Verse 7, the words of the holy and true one. Jesus is holy. The word means set apart. Nothing can be compared to him. He is God. He is set apart in his character, in his words, in his actions, in his purposes. This is a letter from God himself as Jesus is part of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct beings. He is not just holy, but he is also the true one. This is just one word in the Greek and it basically means genuine. 100% authentic. He is the real God in a city that has hundreds of false gods out there. When you see the word genuine on a product, you know that it is the real deal. And that is what we have in Jesus. No watered-down version of God, but God himself. He's taking away any doubt of the importance and value of this letter. These are the very words of God, written specifically to the church in Philadelphia, and he's saying, handle them with care and take them seriously. From here, he identifies another truth as well as the first of many promises given in this brief letter. Verse 7 goes on, it says, Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts 
and no one opens. What is he talking about here? We'd have to go back to the book of Isaiah 22, chapter 22. In this section of Scripture, we have the Assyrians who have invaded Judah. And rather than turning to God, the Jews want to be delivered by trusting in the leaders in Egypt. One of the evil leaders was Shebna. He used his office for his own personal gain, not for the good of the people. And as a result, God, who sees it all, decides to remove him from office and put a faithful man in that position, a man named Eliakim. Let me pick up the account in verse 19 of Isaiah 22. This is speaking of Shebna. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. The key of David meant the giving of authority to do as he deems best. So if he opens something, it will remain open. If he shuts something, it will remain shut. He is given from God that power and authority to make it so. The same is true of Jesus here in Philadelphia in this letter. He has the power and the authority. He is God. And he always has the best interests of the people in mind. We never have to question that. And what he says and what he does is final. There is no one who can stop him. There's no one who can come along and close the door that Jesus has opened or open the door that Jesus has closed. He has absolute power overall. Uh, this reminds me of a scene in one of the Avengers movies. I admit it, I love the Avenger movies. Uh, that series with all the different heroes. It's your classic good versus evil. Well, there's one real bad dude in this series called Thanos. He was a genocidal warlord from Titan whose main objective was to collect all six infinity stones that would give him the power to wipe out half of the universe's population. He felt the universe was becoming overpopulated and needed to be controlled. And so it was his duty and his role to do that by collecting these infinity stones and wiping out half the universe. Well, in one battle scene, it appears that once again, Thanos could not be stopped. And sensing another victory, Thanos says, I am inevitable. Of course, right after he says this, he ends up being defeated. But the line, I am inevitable, is exactly what Jesus is saying here when speaking about the opening and the shutting. Unlike Thanos, Jesus truly cannot be stopped. If he opens something, it will remain open until he decides to shut it. This is inevitable. There is nothing anyone or anything can do to stop this. And this is the first great promise Jesus gives the church in Philadelphia to encourage them. And it's a promise he gives us. Think about it. how important is this promise for us today? How important is it for you today? 
that Jesus is inevitable. No one can stop him. He is in control. Things will play out exactly as he has planned. He is coming back. We see that in this letter. He talks about that. He will defeat evil once and for all. He's already won the battle. It's just a matter of time before he wraps it up. Every promise of God in the Bible is inevitable. It cannot be avoided. Because he is inevitable. Would be a great t-shirt. Jesus is inevitable. It's probably already out there. So we have this great promise that what God does cannot be stopped. Now from this great truth, he now gives them a second promise related to just what he has said about opening and shutting. Look at verse 8. He says, I know your works. Does he know your works? Does God know every work of yours? He does. God sees it all. And then look at the promise. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He promises an open door. And that means it is inevitable. It cannot be stopped. It is certain. God has opened a door from them, for them. And he promises it will remain open until he decides to shut it. What does this open door mean? best way to interpret scripture is to look at the context it is in and then look at other verses that address this issue as well so let's look at the context when we look at what he says next in verses 8 through 10 he speaks about them keeping his word about not denying his name about their patient endurance they are in a spiritual battle and they are remaining true to who they are in christ and how they live out their lives this is the context then let's look at a few verses that speak of an, a door, an open door. Just going to uh, read through them rather quickly. Acts 14.27 says this. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So opening a door means opening the hearts of the people to respond to the good news. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, this is Paul speaking, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Sounds like in Philadelphia. Boy, God's opened up a door. It's not easy. There are adversaries there. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So I recognized God had opened a door for ministry there. And then lastly, Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So in all these counts, we see the concept of an open door is used in referring to an opportunity to minister, an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he died, that he rose from the grave, that everyone who puts their faith and trust in him will be saved and will enter an eternal relationship with the living God. Therefore, we can conclude, though living in Philadelphia is a spiritual battle, Jesus has promised them that he has opened the door for them to minister 
to advance the kingdom of God, to share Jesus. And God was going to work in that open door. A door that no one can shut, that evil can do nothing against. Therefore, he's saying, keep being faithful. Keep ministering. Keep sharing Jesus. I have opened the door for you. Be encouraged. There's opportunities to advance the gospel. When you look at your life, and do you see some open doors that God has given you? Opportunities to minister. Opportunities to, to share of the hope that you have in Jesus. Those doors that are opened are from Jesus. Be encouraged. Then it's interesting because in the very next sentence, he deals what could possibly get in the way of them being encouraged. What could keep them from embracing this promise that he has just given them of an open door? What can keep them, what can keep us from embracing the promises of, of being encouraged by God? One word, self. God addresses their issue that could cause them to pull back. The latter part, some verse, latter part of verse 8, look what he says. He says, I know that you have but little power. He can hear them thinking, but God, we're, we're so small. We, we're so lacking in power and, and, and energy as a church. What good can we really accomplish? Maybe they're comparing themselves with other larger churches that have more spiritual vitality than their church. And once again, we see the danger of comparing they don't have much to offer compared to other churches. I mean, where do they get this concept of little power unless they're comparing with others? So why bother with us? Leave it to the more gifted, to the more spiritually influential churches. What can we of little power accomplish for the kingdom of God? Do you ever feel insignificant? Do you feel, you know, I'm not that gifted. I don't have that much to offer. Kind of a simple person. Oh, what a lie that is. Straight from the pit of hell. God is never interested in how powerful you are. That is the thinking of the world. Look at what matters to him. You see, we need to keep our thinking biblical. We're getting all these thoughts from the world and they can influence and get us to stop thinking biblically. So what is the biblical thinking in this? Keep reading in verse 8. Here's what matters to God. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's not about how powerful you are. It's the fact that you've kept my name you have not denied me God is looking for those who are faithful who live true to his word who don't pull back from their faith when things get difficult and each and every one of us here can do that and each and every person online can do that just be faithful God knows your gifting. He gave it to you. When we 
feel bad or we uh, think that we're not that gifted, you know, that's kind of slamming God. This is a gifting I gave you. Why are you looking? Don't we often take our own gifting for granted and always want the gifts of others that we can never have, but boy, they seem so cool, instead of saying, wait a second, don't you see how I've gifted you? And I have purposes for you with your gifting. Don't brush those aside. Stop comparing. We need to open our eyes to the opportunity, opportunities God gives us and simply be faithful to them. This is what God desires of each of us. What he's pleased about with the church in Philadelphia, there's no rah, rah, God going crazy here, but stating what he values clearly and with no fanfare. Hey, you remain faithful. You have not denied my name. That's what matters to me. Be encouraged. I don't care how big you are, how powerful you are. I care that you take what I've given you and you live it out. And you're faithful in where I've placed you. Using the gifts I've given you for the kingdom. That's what matters to him. How often do we let self get in the way of God encouraging us? Of getting in the way of going out and ministering because, you know, I really don't have much to offer. Oh, you're not listening to God, you're listening to the things of the evil one. Go out, be used of him. Maybe there's that one person at work that God has put on your heart and you've been praying for them and God has given you opportunities and little ways to share some things about Jesus with them an open door, but they still haven't come to know Christ. And then you hear about others who uh, they've led various people to Christ and you think, she was, what good am I? What difference am I really making? You're comparing. You're thinking about results and numbers. Who saves people, you or Jesus? That's right. He's in charge of the results, not you. God is not about numbers or size but about faithfulness and obedience. Do you believe this? This is the truth. And it runs contrary to the message of the world. If he gives you an open door to minister, you keep ministering, no matter how insignificant or small it may seem to you. For example, there are a lot of people who are behind the scenes that makes Sunday mornings happen here at Heritage. Majority work is not by, done by the pastors on Sunday morning, but by volunteers like you. People helping out, being available and faithful. Don't think for a second that this doesn't matter to God. God cares. Be encouraged that you're being faithful to the gifting and the ability to help out others. Moms, those of you who are at home with your children, you're every bit as important as you raise those kids in the ways of the Lord as your husband who maybe is out there working, sharing, a, being a faithful witness for Christ at his job, providing income for your family. Both are equally as important. Building relationships with your neighbors, being kind to everyone you meet, letting the love of Jesus flow out of your heart to others. They're all valuable and important to God. This is being faithful and living out your faith, being obedient to his commands. This is what is important to God. 
be encouraged. God is not through with his promises. Now he gives one dealing with those who have been opposing the Christians. There were Jews who were, not keeping, who were keeping the Christians out of the synagogue, saying that they were not true Jews. And you say, well, what difference does that make? Well, in that culture with Roman rule, if they were not considered Jews, that means they fell under, the, they were not protected anymore, and they fell under the Roman civil requirements for participation in the emperor cults. So then they say, okay, since you're not a Jew, then you have to do this stuff. And since the Christians would not do that, it led to persecution. Look what God thinks of them in verse 9. These Jews that are, are doing this to the Christians. Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I want to stop right there. First thing he does is he calls them a synagogue of Satan. As Mike pointed out a couple of weeks ago, there are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Only two. You're either for God or you're for Satan. There's no other option. Though you may not acknowledge it being a Satan, if you're not of God, the Scripture's saying, then you're of the evil one. It sounds rather harsh, but the Bible is very clear on this. And we see it here. These Jews, he says, are liars. They're not followers of Christ, the true God. Therefore, they are of Satan. These are the Jews. They're reading the Old Testament laws. They're praying to God. They believe that there's one true God. And yet Jesus is calling them a synagogue of Satan. I think of when Jesus confronted Peter, who went against Jesus when Jesus said he was going to have to suffer and be killed. Peter said to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You see, he forgot Jesus' words are inevitable. How did the loving Jesus respond? Did he say, Pete, Pete, take it easy. I appreciate your zeal and passion, wanting to protect me. Trust me, this is the Father's will. This, this will provide the way of salvation. This is good. This is what is best. That's what a loving Jesus, that's how loving, kind, compassionate Jesus would respond to, to one of his followers who was just getting a little overzealous, right? No, not even close. Listen to what Jesus said to him. Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa, 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 whoa! Does that seem a little strong to you? It, it does to me. How do you think Peter took that? It's like, huh? Satan... Jesus is making it very clear. The things of man are the things of Satan. It was not okay for Peter to think this way. He identifies it for what it is. Satanic, evil, not of God. There's only two kingdoms. You're either of God or you're of the evil one. This thinking was of the evil one. To keep Jesus from dying would keep him providing salvation for the world. That's of the devil. Now, I'll tell you right now, I'm not one who has gone around calling everything satanic or of the devil. That, that's not what I do. I'm not even comfortable doing that. 
But if it is not of God, the Bible makes it clear that then it is of the evil one and Satan. Doesn't matter whether I'm comfortable or not with it. Have you ever noticed that the Bible? The Bible doesn't ask you, are you comfortable with this? It says this is the way it is. I'm God. I call the shots. People don't like that, therefore don't usually want to follow Jesus. The more we think this way, I believe the more it will help us not to compromise or embrace things that are not of God. Call them for what they are. The things of man, they're evil, they're of the kingdom of Satan. If you start identifying things that way in your mind, won't that make you think twice about doing something that is not of God or embracing values not of God, which are then of Satan? See, that's thinking biblically. Isn't one of the greatest tactics of the evil one today is to water down sin, to make it acceptable and even approved by the majority? Isn't that what it does? The majority says it's okay. The Bible says it's either of God, and if it's not of God, it's of Satan. We need to face that reality. Don't water things down that are not of God. They are evil. Then after identifying these so-called Jews who were not people of God but of Satan, he then gives another promise of what will happen to them. And this is inevitable. The end of verse 9. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What Jesus is promising here is that the ones who are causing them trouble and opening them up for being persecuted more for their faith by keeping them out of the synagogue, by saying that they're not true Jews, they will be dealt with once and for all. They will end up bowing before them and learning that it's actually the Christians whom God loves. God promises to deal with these evil people. No one gets away with anything with God. That is the truth. They will ultimately be dealt with in their lifetime or when they die and go before the one true God. God is inevitable. God explains to the church what these false Jews will end up doing. Evil never wins. Oh, they may get their way for the short term as we see now. But God will deal with evil eventually. In his time, in his way, the problem is we are literally too short-sighted in looking at evil today. We just look at what's happening now and we get overwhelmed by it, saying, hold on, it's not the end of the story. I call it the Psalm 73 syndrome. It's one of my favorite psalms where Asaph is overwhelmed and discouraged by how evil is getting away with evil. He talks about the rich and how they influence people in powerful ways to get their way. And they don't love God. They hate God. They curse Him and they seem to get away with it. And all the while, he's suffering and has little resources at his disposal. It's totally unfair. And he's upset. If you read Psalm 73, he is ticked off. And he says, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. What is going on? You ever feel that way? Ever get frustrated by what's going on in the world? Asaph did. It's okay. It happens. But everything changes 
in his feelings and thinking when he finally went into the sanctuary of God. He says, then I, quote, discerned their end. It was revealed to them what ultimately they would come to nothing. I love how they put it in the translation of the message. Listen, Psalm 73, this is 17 through 20. Talking about now that Asaph has been in the sanctuary of God. He's gotten God's perspective on things. Here's what he says. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, basically got God's perspective, then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you've put them on with a final crash in the ditch of delusions. In the blink of an eye, disaster. A blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes. Nothing. There's nothing to them. And there never was. God gives the church in Philadelphia the whole picture. So they don't just focus on the short term and what's going on. Are you in need of being reminded of the whole picture? Do you find yourself getting a little too caught up in what's going on in the here and now and it's discouraging you, making you anxious? Are you in need of being reminded and encouraged that God is inevitable, He's in charge? Never changes. God then gives them another promise that deals with the great tribulation to come upon the whole earth. And this promise applies to them because they have kept his word and patiently endured. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, which indicates it's been difficult. It takes effort. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. An hour of trial coming upon the whole world seems to be best understood as the great tribulation that takes place before the second coming of Christ. The book of Daniel talks about it in chapter 9, Jesus in Matthew 24, and then later in Revelation in several places. I don't have time to go into all the details. I'm going to keep this incredibly brief. And so I wish you'd talk about this more, but I don't have time. The tribulation is a period of time where everyone will experience worldwide hardships, disasters, famine, war, pain, and suffering. You said, doesn't that sound like today? Which will affect all of creation. And it will precede judgment of the wicked people on earth when the second coming takes place. Some believe that this verse is clear that Christians will be removed before the great tribulation, a a position called pre-trib. There are other godly scholars, Christians, who believe Christians will be removed halfway through the tribulation. This is called a mid-trib position, and they have their verses that they like. There are other godly scholars who believe that Christians will go through the tribulation and then be removed after the tribulation, and this is called post-tribulation view. Anytime you have godly scholars who come to three different conclusions my belief is you better be humble about your conclusion and the position you have taken because maybe Scripture is not quite as clear as you think it is on this issue. What we can say for sure here is that God promises that there will be some kind of relief for the believers of Philadelphia in the Great Tribulation. Whether it's removal before, during, or after, God is there, God is with them, he will help them and make a difference. The bottom line is they will not suffer the same way the non-believer will suffer. This is what we can hold on to. God will help us. This is inevitable. Jesus then gives them the one exhortation in verse 11 as well with another promise. First the promise. Verse 11, I am coming soon. 
Okay, if you're a literalist, does this bother you? Soon? Uh, 2,000 years? Soon? And it kind of bugs me. It doesn't seem to be very accurate here. This word is not simply speaking of timing, but it's a concept of suddenly or quickly. It's just going to happen. It's like, wow. And as they await his sudden and quick return, he urges them to remain loyal to him so that no one will take their crown. See what it says? I'm coming soon. Hold fast. That's what he exhorts him to. Hold fast. Keep doing what you're doing. What you have. Hold on to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. What crown? The word literally refers to the uh, winner of the marathon race crown, which was a wreath of leaves that would go around their head that they would wear when they won the marathon. Paul speaks of a crown in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Listen to what it says there. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. A crown of righteousness given to those who, like Paul, who have fought the faith who have fought for the faith, who have finished the race, who have kept it. He's telling the church to keep going, keep doing what you've been doing. It will take effort, but it will be worth it. And he affirms this in the next verse, verse 12, which has one promise after another. Look at the promises he gives in verse 12. The one who conquers, who remains faithful, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Promise. Never shall he go out of it. Promise. I will write on him the name of my God. Promise. And the name of the city of my God. Promise. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Promise. These are all promises that God will be forever with them. That they will be with God forever in his presence in the new Jerusalem. Listen to the words in Ephesians as it speaks about the temple of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When it speaks of them being a temple in the pillar, a, a pillar in the temple, he is saying they are to have a permanent place in the presence of God's kingdom. It's interesting, Philadelphia was known for having huge earthquakes, which destroyed much of the city, but the pillars tended to remain in place. He promises you shall never go out of it. They will be identified with God. His name will be written on them. The name of this, also the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem, which is only mentioned in one other place in Scripture, and that's in Revelation 21. Let me read these first two verses in Revelation, which talks about the New Jerusalem, what we have all to look forward to in Christ. Then I saw, Revelation 21, 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem, prepared for the family of God. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It makes all the difference for eternity. 
(laughs) How awesome is this going to be? This new Jerusalem coming right out of heaven. A city life (laughs) upon which we have never seen before. I'm not a city guy. I'm not a big fan of the city. But I'm definitely a new Jerusalem guy. Man, I am pumped about being able to go and spend eternity in this new Jerusalem. This is what we have to look forward to in Christ. It is inevitable. (coughs) God wants to encourage the church in Philadelphia, which has been faithful and obedient. They have not denied the faith, even though it costs them at times. He encourages them by giving them promises that are inevitable. Promises of open doors, enabling them to minister. Has God given you open doors? It doesn't matter how bleak things may appear or how feeble we are. God promises He will work in and through us. (coughs) The opportunities to minister are there. He promises that He will deal with the evil one. The evil in this world will ultimately have to answer and will be judged. That's a promise. May we not have short-term vision on evil. He will deal with it in his way and in his timing, not ours. We have the promise of relief from the great tribulation. We won't suffer like those who do not know him. We have the promise that he's coming back. He will make things right. Think of the promise that we will be a part of the temple of God forever in the new Jerusalem. All this is true. All this is inevitable because of their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Who we believe in makes all the difference for eternity. Do you know Him? Is He real to you? Can you see from this brief letter what a difference Jesus makes and the need for Jesus in your life? Be encouraged. He is faithful to his followers. We are promised a glorious future. It is inevitable. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, I I thank you for your word that is true. You don't pull punches. You don't try to be politically correct. You just say it for what it is. You declare your truths. You don't seek our approval. You don't worry about, boy, I hope this isn't too harsh, hard for them to hear. You proclaim the truth. Lord, I thank you for the promises that have been declared in this brief letter. Promises that are true for us as well. Oh God, help self not to get in the way of these promises, but help us to embrace them, to take them deep into our soul, to hold on to them in these difficult times that we face. Knowing that you're here knowing that it's not about how big or how gifted we are, but just being faithful and obedient. Oh God, encourage us all to be just that. Help us to see things for how they truly are. If they are not of God, then they are of the evil one. Help us not to compromise on that, but to think biblically. God, encourage those who are discouraged now. Lift up the hearts of those who are anxious because of all that is going on. Help them to see things from your perspective, not short term.
God, I thank you that we have everything to look forward to. A glorious, amazing future in your presence forever because of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone who hasn't come to faith in Jesus yet, that they will see that you will prompt in their hearts the need to respond to Jesus, the need to put their faith and trust in him alone, not the things of this world, not themselves. Jesus, you came and died to pay the price for our sin, rose from the grave, proving that you alone are God, and that sin can be totally forgiven because you paid for it on the cross. Oh God, if anyone senses the need for you, may they respond in faith now and ask you to come to put their faith in you and you alone. Thank you. And God, you alone are inevitable. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.